here. This is not about politics. This is about morality. Health emergencies can't wait for us to have some theoretical debate about some better idea that will never, ever come to pass. We are behind every country pretty nearly in Europe in this matter of medical care for our citizens. I'm a physician. That means you have a right to come to my house and conscript me. It means you believe in slavery. Welcome, everyone. Uh, my name is Benjamin Day. I'm Stephanie Nakajima. And this is Medicare for All, the podcast for everybody who needs healthcare. That's my pre-vacation announcement, <laughs> which comes delivered with a little bit more energy than usual. I'm getting out of here on Wednesday. I've never seen Ben like this before <laughs> in our five years of working together. <laughs> So what should we talk about, Stephanie? So today, um, good insurance news. Uh, United Healthcare, the largest insurer in the United States, announced this May an evil new policy uh, it said would help hold down healthcare costs. So uh, how this works is the insurer would review claims after the facts, right, for emergency department care to determine whether or not the visit that you had at the ER was for an actual emergency. And if it was not as deemed by this insurer who has every incentive not to pay your bills, the insurer would deny the claim. So after an outcry from doctors and patients, understandably, United Healthcare said it would delay implementation until at least after the pandemic had passed. Oh, I know. So nice of them. <laughs> they softened. Hearts of gold. <laughs> but it's still the insurer still plans to institute the policy uh, eventually. So like almost everything in our healthcare system, you know, this new ER policy, it doesn't make any sense, even on a financial level and, of course, not on a moral level. Ben, your thoughts? <laughs> well, I mean, the theme here is, of course, as since our healthcare system cannot control costs, premiums would tend to rise more and more and more. So insurers, their whole job is to try and find ways to make our healthcare coverage worse to prevent those premiums from going up more. So this is just one of the many, many myriad ways that they're screwing us over. And this one resonates with me more than most because although I didn't have the experience of going to emergency room and then retroactively after the fact having my, my stay there not covered, I did have the experience of being admitted to a hospital for a few days and having that stay denied by my insurance company, which was Aetna, another lovely national for-profit insurance company. And I can tell you the experience, just how shocking and demoralizing and like kind of end of your life experience that is. For me, I was uh, suffering from panic attacks. Panic I had a panic disorder. Um, at the time, I actually didn't know that it was panic attacks. I thought I had some terrible like physical illness and my doctors actually misdiagnosed me for like a month, but I kept landing in the emergency room over and over again. And so eventually I was admitted to the hospital for a few days and when I was being discharged, my, my doctor sat me down and said, you know, we don't want you to panic, ha ha ha. But um, your insurance company said they're not going to cover your stay here because they thought it should not have been, you should not have been admitted to the hospital in the first place. And it's like, what the fuck? I was just listening to my doctor's recommendations, basically. And of course, I didn't know. I just had these terrifying symptoms that were preventing me from working anymore, from going to school, kind of functioning in day-to-day -day life. So you kind of put yourself into the care of the healthcare system. And then you end up with this bill, four or $5,000, which to me, I was earning like $14,000 a year. It might as well have been $4 million for me. I was starting to figure out, like, am I going to have to file bankruptcy myself? 
I was really young at the time. Like, how will I, could I possibly fundraise this much money for my family, which I wasn't sure I could. And, you know, I thought I had done like everything right, so to speak. Like I had a job that had private health insurance. I thought I was covered. And I guess I was naive. I, I was pretty skeptical about all things American healthcare, but I had no idea you could literally be covered and follow your doctor's orders, like do everything right to a T. And then your insurance company can just decide that they're not going to pay for you and you'll be stuck with this massive bill. And this is basically what we're talking about in the context of the emergency room, which is usually the moment when patients have the least control or ability to make, you know, decision, rational decisions. You can't shop for, for providers at that point. Usually you just need care right then. So Stephanie, this is maybe the dumbest question I'm ever going to ask you, but why is United Health now implementing this whole policy of actually screwing people over who go to the emergency room, which, you know, many of us have had experiences with denials, but usually the rules have been a little bit stricter for emergency rooms. Right. Uh, well, they haven't actually come out and said this, but, you know, as you may have heard, ER visits have actually been down during the pandemic as people are afraid to go to the hospital and you know, catch COVID and right. are even being instructed to stay away from the hospital if they have some serious illness. You know, my father-in-law who was dying of COPD, uh, complications from COPD in Denmark, they really tried to keep him out of the hospital, especially in the the beginning of the pandemic as long as they could while they were still trying to figure out what was, what was going on. Um, but anyway, so ER visits are down, which means private health insurance profits are up. And United Healthcare is absolutely no exception. It reported more than $15 billion in profit last year. And to put that in context, that's an 11% increase on the profit it made from the previous year. And so I think that they looked at this and they said, this is amazing. Let's never have people in the ER again. <laughs> I mean, that number, the 15, that would cover like a percentage of the Medicare expansion we've been talking about, right? You know, like extending dental vision and hearing to all seniors, you could almost do that with just the profits that they're skimming off of our healthcare system. It's so infuriating. In that one quarter, you know? Yeah. I mean, with all the PAYGO rules and everything, trying to scrimp together, how are we going to cut costs so that we can finance like dental or vision or something like that? And then just because they are still allowed to collect all of our healthcare money, and not have to give it back to us in any way. I mean, that's, it's just unbelievable. So a good time for them to start skimping on coverage. Exactly. More, right? yeah. um, and they've never really wanted people in the ER and they've been doing this for a long time, which we'll get into later. Ben, could you tell us a little bit about like Anthem Blue Cross? And I think that they've been doing this for a while. Yeah. So I, I don't wish this is the first time it was, this is happening, but this, we're kind of reliving history a little bit here. Anthem Blue Cross, which some people hear Blue Cross and they think it's a not-for-profit organization, but a lot of the nonprofit Blue Blue Cross insurance companies around the country have converted to for-profit. And so that's the Anthem Blue Cross. That's the for-profit version of Blue Cross. So they started doing this back in 2015. I think they started in Kentucky and then they started gradually over the years spreading this policy out from state to state. And it looks a little bit different in each state, but they basically were doing the exact same thing. They're saying, we're going to look at, we're going to review all these emergency department visits, decide retroactively after the fact that some of them were not necessary, that they weren't actually emergencies. And in those cases, we are going to refuse to cover it. And the entire hospital bill then goes to the patient who landed in the emergency room. I actually pulled up, this is the letter that Anthem sent to their enrollees back in 2016. 
2017. I don't know which, I, oh, this is Missouri actually. And like typical, like this is Orwellian, like newspeak in big, bold letters. The title says, save the ER for emergencies, or you'll be responsible for the cost. Going to the emergency room or calling 911 is always the way to go when it's an emergency. And we've got you covered for those situations. But starting June 1st, 2017, you'll be responsible for ER costs when it's not an emergency. Quotations mark, this isn't a change to your benefits plan. If you need care now, but it's not an emergency, try these other options. Urgent care, retail health clinic. We all know going to CVS is a great option when when you're in serious pain. Live health online or 24-7 nurse line. Uh, basically, three of these four are not care at all. So we've seen this, and as Anthem has continued, Anthem's policy is still in place. They've expanded it from state to state. They're not quite as big as United Health, which is why it's terrifying that United Health is now implementing a policy just like this. But yeah, this we've started to see this, and I I believe also even in Medicaid, some states have have implemented policies like this as well. Yeah. So many states have actually been implementing this policy for Medicaid beneficiaries for years, sort of like a sandbox for what was to come for the private sector. And this is just a big a pattern of targeting and, and terrorizing Medicaid beneficiaries, part of, for example, a pattern of work requirements and cutting benefits of all kind and privatizing Medicaid as well. So basically what, what happens here is that these Medicaid programs have implemented co-pays for non-emergency visits. So, Ben, what do you think would happen to ER visits in a situation in which your insurer had implemented copays for a visit they would later deem to be not emergency? Well, it says copay, so I, I assume it's something like I'm going to hope that Medicaid is not as evil as these big private insurance companies. Maybe this is wishful thinking, and you'd get you'd be paying. A, when I go to the emergency room, I pay a copay of you know, whatever, $100 or $200. It might be even up to, to more than that now. Um, but is that is that more or less what these Medicaid programs are doing? Or Yeah. So basically, these co-pays, the implementation of these co-pays has had zero impact on the number of ER visits by Medicaid recipients. Mm. So that was a, a knocked it out of the park with that policy, right? <laughs> um, it's just a way of because of course people still need to get care and this, this is the avenue in which they need to receive it, then they will continue to get the care there. And it's just really a way of extorting more money out of people who are on Medicaid for the reason that they don't have money, right? To pay for, for healthcare. Um, and there's a long history of kind of basically essentially trying to punish and torture people who are in public welfare programs like Medicaid to allegedly want people not to go onto those programs and, you know, get back to work in the private sector, even though there's a pandemic and vast, you know, regular unemployment levels that the government actually maintains intentionally. So I see this kind of as a piece of that as well. And there's actually another piece to this, which is that most states, including Florida, will now charge you a percentage of the bill if that visit is deemed to be a non-emergency. So if you're on Medicaid and you get charged a percentage of a hospital bill, I mean, that could be devastating, right? Yeah. And this is co-insurance, which is like, I, I said at the beginning that insurance companies keep like coming up with new ways to make our coverage terrible. I feel like no one even knew about co-insurance. Like, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, it just wasn't a thing. And now it's just like taking off everywhere. And now it's part of our Medicaid plans in some of these red states, but... Yeah. And I think there's one state, South Dakota, that goes so far as to charge you the full amount 
for a non-emergency, non-emergency, right? ER visit. No. So just like Anthem and United Health are doing with their private plans. And I mean, there's a reason that Medicaid historically has not had allowed copays or large deductibles or anything. It's because by definition, only very, very low income people qualify for Medicaid. I know that South Dakota has not expanded Medicaid yet. So that means you probably have to be below the poverty line to qualify for Medicaid. And if you then end up with an emergency room visit, the South Dakota Medicaid then decides was not emergency and then you get stuck with the whole bill, I mean, it's almost a guaranteed bankruptcy. I mean, there's no way if you have that little income that you can afford any emergency room visit, uh, no matter how brief. You know how crazy these bills looked, even when you get like nominal care or someone barely does anything to, to help you once you're in there. Yeah, this is one of the things we don't really talk about in the single payer movement, that just having inequality of insurance is in itself really wrong. And it's something I think that really you know, takes the legs out of the idea that we can get universal coverage through a mix of public and private, right? I mean, Medicaid is is life-saving for people, but it's still like not that great of insurance. It's usually has a very restricted network. I mean, you're less likely to find a PCP who will take Medicaid. Medicaid is one of, isn't actually, I think it's only 65% of PCPs will take Medicaid. And so on top of that, then if you get these kinds of additional co-pays or co-insurance, just like with private insurance, then you're getting both a restricted network, and in many cases, not as comprehensive coverage as you should be getting for your income level. Well, we have a long, really positive history of separate but equal uh, public services. So I'm sure that this will work out, this public-private mix idea. <laughs> um, so wh what I wanted to talk about a little bit was, for for my experience with, with getting one of these big hospital bills, you know, the, the notion that I, as a patient, could like figure out whether I was having an emergency or not is kind of comical. I mean, or whether I should have been admitted to the hospital or not. I literally did not know what was happening to me. I didn't know if it was a mental health issue. I didn't know if it was a physical health issue. And my doctors didn't either. It took them a while to figure it out. So, you know, I went back and looked at, you know, the, the one thing about the fact that Anthem has had this policy in place now for five or six years is that there actually has been a lot of research out there kind of following up what has happened with all these Anthem patients who have now had their coverage denied. And one thing, you know, I pulled up a report, Senator Claire McCaskill of Missouri actually issued their own, their office issued a report about how dangerous and harmful this uh, Anthem policy has been in Missouri. She, her report found in Missouri that 73% of these denials that Anthem made saying, we're not going to cover your ER stay, were overturned on appeal. So of course, this is only people who know that they are able to appeal, uh, that have the time and resources to go through a whole appeals process. You know, these were back in the sort of the Clinton era that we passed all these patient bills of rights to protect people from managed care, which was denying healthcare coverage left and right, just like this, but with other types of care. And so most of that created these state-run appeal boards where if your insurance company continues denying your care and you think it's wrongful, you can appeal it up to a state board level. So that's what we're talking about here. So almost all of them get overturned. And that means that they, for almost all these denials, they were actually wrong that these were not emergency visits and that these people should not have entered the emergency. And the report says that the numbers were very similar in uh, neighboring states like Kentucky and Georgia, also up in the 70s and 80s, of all of these getting overturned. So it's it's complete bullshit what they claim that, that they're trying to prevent uh, unnecessary use of emergency room and provide cheaper care to people in different settings. And there's also a big 2018 study that was published by Boston area researchers, shout out to the Boston area people. Um, <laughs> and 
they basically looked at, you know, what would happen if this anthem policy was spread to the rest of the country, which terrifying as it sounds, that to me is what is actually happening. When we look at it trickling out to Medicaid policies, when we look at United Health announcing this major policy change, it is starting to happen. This is going to be like the new norm that all of us considered unthinkable five years ago and 20, 10, 15 years ago, we're all going to be like, oh yeah, ER denials. That's going to be another thing like surprise billing, you know? And what their study said was that basically the idea that you can, after the fact, retroactively review and deny emergency room visits is itself basically impossible and immoral. And what they said, I'll just quote them briefly here, is, you know, the main limitation of retrospectively judging the necessity of ED care is that the determination is based on information not available to patients prior to the medical evaluations. When patients become acutely ill, they must decide whether to seek care, and if so, when and where, based not on a diagnosis, but on the symptoms they are experiencing. So if you have chest pain or a a very severe headache, you don't know if it's a heart attack or if it's, you know, if you're having heartburn. If you have a severe headache, you don't know if it's brain cancer or a migraine maybe that you've never experienced before. So the whole notion that you can kind of before the fact determine whether you're worthy of emergency care is kind of a joke. And to to use the diagnosis that comes out at the end is unfair to patients who have to make the decision in advance about should I go to the emergency room where I might possibly get billed or not. Stephanie, I know that we've, along with like this research and data analysis, there's also been like all these horrifying stories that have come out since Anthem started doing this. Yeah, I mean, and just to, f- to cap off kind of what you were saying there, that's the evil genius, I think, of this policy is that it combines two goals of the private health insurance industry, one of which is continuing terrorization of and conditioning of people to be afraid to use their health insurance, right? They want you to, to be conditioned early on to think twice about, you know, whether or not you you really need to go to the doctor or whatever, because the more times they push back on you, the more times they deny you care, the more of a hassle you know the experience of going to the doctor to be, and the less likely you are to go in the future, which is going to help them keep costs down. And then the second insidious thing I think about it is just that it's another effort to reframe managing your health insurance, which nobody should be doing. (laughs) Um, That's a function of the state, really. Managing your health insurance as a personal responsibility, right? You can do your homework about knowing which doctor or hospital is in your your network. You can read your plan and know all the minutiae before you request a treatment. You know, jump through all their hoops. It's part of like a victim blaming effort to cast these like- And we know, we know in reality what that looks like, right? We all Google our symptoms. <laughs> And then it's no wonder everyone lands at the emergency room. I don't know about you, but every time I Google my symptoms, I'm like, oh, my God, I have dengue <laughs> fever. How did I get dengue fever in, in Boston, Massachusetts, in the <laughs> regional Northeast? I mean, uh, it, the notion that, you, that, that this should be the responsibility of patients to decide whether they, they're having an emergency symptom or not is so, is so wrong on so many levels. I mean, we are only able, I think, to diagnose our panic level not our, you know, not provide an actual medical diagnosis. And even medical professionals are not supposed to diagnose themselves in in circumstances like this. Yeah. And I mean, the hell that it is to get to the doctor in the first place. I mean, that itself is a big enough barrier, I think, that anybody who didn't really need to go would not go. (laughs) And then just the ER co-payments, even if your whole visit isn't denied. I mean, the ER itself is very expensive to use. So no one does it lightly, I don't think. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's just super dangerous for patients to erect a barrier like this. It's not just inequitable because it's obviously inequitable and all that stuff, but it's actually dangerous, right? And then I think the other thing that I would really want to point out here is that there's actually a disproportionate impact on people of color and particularly women of color. So according to the Journal of Public Health and Emergency, uh, women use the emergency department 25% more often than men. Men aren't in touch with their bodies. They're not going to the yard when they need to, whatever. And Black Americans under the age of 65 use the emergency department 10 to 20% more often than white Americans. So this is, this is a policy to keep people of color out of the emergency room, basically. Right. Yeah. Any anyone who uses more healthcare, basically, uh, as a group, um, and we'll get to this later. But some a lot of people have this image that uninsured people are like using the emergency department as their primary care. This is actually not true. And the main reason people use the emergency room when maybe they don't have to is that they don't have access to primary care at those times. Uh, maybe it's on the weekend. Maybe it's on the evening. Before this call, you and I were talking about like, how do we even find urgent care within our insurance network? And it basically doesn't exist anywhere in the Boston area. There is no urgent care. So it's like, if your primary care doctor's office is not open, the ER is your only other option if you're experiencing pain that you can't put up, you know, withstand for however much longer you think it's going to take to get, you know, access to primary care. Yeah. So. And if you think that, you know, this conflation of symptoms that are real versus symptoms that are more mild is, is, is something that's made up. So listen to the story from this student in Florida you know, she was a nursing student, actually. In 2017, she went to the emergency room in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So wait, this was not in 2017. Sorry. She experienced severe chest pain, numbness in her left arm and leg and shortness of breath. And she feared she was having a stroke or heart attack. And an ER doctor evaluated her and determined she was having a panic attack. Sounds a little familiar. Sounds familiar. But of the 16,000 yeah. she was billed in ER charges, ouch, the insurer would only cover $292 because according to her explanation of benefits documents, the charges exceeded the maximum allowed. And she was able to like read her plan and be like, that's actually not what it says. <laughs> and when they when she pushed back on that, they responded that actually United Healthcare uh, advised this diagnosis does not fall within the definition of an emergency. That is so similar to my story, except, I mean, the amazing thing is that the bill is so much higher than what I got. And I was admitted to the hospital for three days. I didn't just go to the ER. And everybody, everybody, everybody knows who has anything to do with panic disorders that Panic attacks for many people feel ex almost exactly like a heart attack and people think they're having heart attacks when they experience them. So again, this is just like, if you're a patient, how can you possibly know, especially if it's the first time, whether what you're experiencing is a panic attack, which actually to me is an emergency or a heart attack or a stroke, which is, is obviously a much more dangerous emergency, but you can't diagnose yourself until you've actually been brought into the hospital itself. And that's exactly, they were doing the right thing, I think there. Yeah. Well, the moral of the story is if you have severe chest pain, make sure it's a stroke or heart attack before you go to the ER right. May and not just a panic attack. Maybe we all need to like have machines at home so we can take our own vitals, you know, and that would help us determine whether we are actually having an emergency or not. I'm sure that would bring the cost of healthcare down. Exactly. It would at least bring the insurance company's cost down and help out with those struggling profit lines there. I, and I saw this, this second story this is this, this is from a, a Jacobin article. 
that uh, last year, uh, California healthcare regulators fined health insurer Aetna, my arch nemesis Aetna, for wrongfully denying members emergency room claims 93% of the time in violation of state laws protecting emergency room patients. Uh, The department's sample of ER claims denied by Aetna in 2019 found that a stunning 93% were wrongly denied. And I imagine if we were to review all of these denials in any other state from any other insurer, we would find about the same thing because, you know, you saw 73% of patient appeals were overturned. And that doesn't include the patients who didn't bother to appeal because they didn't know they could or didn't have time and resources. To They're do just it. doing like right. an automatic denial. Exactly. Just to yep. see if you're going to fight it. Exactly. Just to see what they can get away with. They know I a mean... percentage. And that's that's all this is. This is all United Health is doing. This is all that Anthem is doing. They're extending this thing, that, which they already do in a lot of other areas of our care, to the emergency room for a certain category and a certain way that they think they can get away with it. And they know a certain percentage of people will let it slide and end up with a bill and either will pay it on their own or will end up in collections and that bill will not be have to be handled by the insurance company, which helps their bottom line. So screw that. Yeah. And not only that, but like our premiums are going to pay for the processing of all of these denials that they're doing exactly. because yeah. they can. And that's where all the administrative waste <laughs> in our system goes to. So you you raised the question of, I mean, one question is, is this even a rational policy for, for patients to be able to choose whether, you know, am I, should I, do I need emergency care right now or do I not? But what about this claim that they are trying to bring down healthcare costs by, you know, they're claiming that people are unnecessarily using the emergency room when they could be treated by a doctor or an urgent care facility so that they are just trying to incentivize people to go to the right place for the type of care that they need. And that that will be cheaper because it, it costs less to treat people in these other settings than it does in the emergency room. Is even that true or? Yeah. I mean, I guess we don't actually, there's no evidence to show that that's actually true. So the number I've seen again and again that's been used, invoked here to justify this policy is that this unnecessary use of emergency room costs $32 billion annually and drives up healthcare costs for everyone. It's going up and up and up. When actually ER visits have been stable for years, they're not going up and up. But costs, the cost to run the ER has been going up, and that's driven by prices, which of course is something that a single-payer healthcare system would fix for us, right? By not allowing providers to just continue charging whatever and whatever, right? And so what ha- ends up happening is that patients land right in the middle of this fight that should be between providers and insurance. And so, you know, this is a price problem and we're just sort of tweaking around the edges and trying to bring down patient utilization, meaning trying to bring down actual patient care because it's too hard to fix the prices because, well, that's what they would say is that it's hard to rein in industry greed, basically. So that's one of the things that I think is is important to know is that it's not there. There actually hasn't been an increase in utilization, but there's actually going to be a decrease in utilization as patients get thrown under the bus for higher prices. And, you know, people, there's this argument that, you know, people use the ER like a doctor's office. Well, again, we talked about many people don't know if their symptoms are true emergencies or not. So whatever you come out on the other side with, maybe that could have been dealt with at the doctor's office. But who is to know before, until you get there, right? And in 2017, there was this really interesting study that sort of casts doubt on whether or not reduction in ER would do anything to this problem, right? So basically, this study, it sought to encourage uninsured Virginians to visit a primary care physician instead of the ER with some kind of financial incentive. So they 
give them money to go to a primary care physician. Um, like a positive financial incentive, not a yes. <laughs> horrible punitive negative incentive. <laughs> oh, that's, that's getting close to giving them like their right to healthcare, right? And they found that there was there was a modest reduction in non-urgent visits to the emergency department with such patients. So it did work to reduce the number of visits to the emergency room, but the total costs for the whole hospital system did not decline because the savings from avoiding the emergency department was offset by increased utilization in the outpatient sector, right? Because people are going to the doctor because they need care. They're not going for any other reason besides that they need care. And that's also, that's the final thing that I think just bothers me about the whole framing of why are people using the ER like a doctor's office, right? The, where the problem that has been identified here is that there's like red on a spreadsheet that is not profitable. And it's not the problem that should be identified, of course, is that people don't have access to healthcare. And uh, I think that that's just how, you know, the logic of capitalism naturally generates this disdain for underserved people. Yeah, there's a, there's a health affairs article that the title is pretty succinct. The uninsured do not use the emergency room. They use other care less. So I hope people can get rid of this, this myth that everyone repeats. I think even on the left and even in progressive kind of Medicare for all circles, people seem to assume that it is the case that uninsured people are just like using the, the emergency department as their, their primary care office, which is, is not true. They use the emergency care uh, the same as everyone else who has insurance. And the only reason we, we have this issue, we do have an issue of overuse of the ER, but it's because the, our primary care access is so shitty in the United States, which is not the case in many other countries um, where they still have, you know, they still have doctors who do house visits. I mean, that's like if you watch like these old 1950s TV shows, it's like doctors doing house visits, a quaint, you know, neighborhood physician. But why are we not doing that anymore? I mean, that would be the perfect solution if you want people not to use the emergency room, if they have an issue where you don't know if it's maybe... They need the ER or not, but they're in pain and they can't wait a full day to have a doctor come and just kind of visit and uh, do some triage in the households and provide some immediate help if it's not serious, but then send them towards the ER if they really, really need it. So yeah, this is this is infuriating. I wish we could do more podcasts on, on non-infuriating topics. Actually, I was actually enjoying the Medicare expansion fight stuff since it feels like we're going to uh, have some wins here, uh, really expanding public access, really helping people's lives. But at the same time that we're like working at making some improvements in the public side, the private side is just completely going to shit, getting worse and worse and worse and increasing, as you say, this kind of reign of terror, trying to keep patients afraid from actually going to, the, to seek care out. And this is just another piece of that. Well, all the reason to expand and improve Medicare for all. Yeah. Sooner than later. And I was going to go off on a rant here about Hospital Corporation of America, <laughs> um, which, you know, the biggest national for-profit hospital chain who had kind of a parallel a strategy of they, you know, historically emergency rooms lose money uh, within the hospital systems because they have to be open all the time. They have to be kind of fully staffed up and they have to accept everyone, you know, unless you turn them away and, you know, tend to have a lot of more uninsured and people with Medicaid uh, coverage, which doesn't pay as well. So it's not as financially lucrative, uh, the emergency room. So Hospital Corporation of America, part of their evil plot to become a incredibly large, profitable national corporation was to make the ER profitable. They did it a bunch of different ways. Some of them involved like a vat, like massively overbilling Medicare and what's called upcoding where you, someone comes in for 
a less expensive thing, but you code them as having ha- being treated for something more expensive. But the third thing they did was to start turning people away from the emergency room if they had a condition which they claimed was non-emergency, but in reality, it just doesn't reimburse well. Insurance companies don't pay them as much for treating it. So they started turning people away. And that helped them actually have shorter wait times in the emergency room waiting room. So once they had done that, they started putting on these electronic billboards in the highway, advertising their emergency room, saying, here's how short our wait time is, like a real time, you know, wait time. So they've been driving people to the emergency room, uh, but they very similar to insurance companies. Instead of after the fact, after you've already been treated in ER, denying coverage, they have been doing this parallel strategy of turning people away from ER visits. And, you know, this is where our, our friend Amy Valella from uh, from Nevada, her daughter was turned away from an HCA hospital, say, claiming she didn't need emergency care. She didn't, it wasn't urgent. She should go out and get ins- insurance and seek a doctor. And then she had a blood clot break, break off in her leg while she was flying and she died when she landed. So this is like the real life uh, results of real profit mongering in the healthcare system. And we've been seeing it on the hospital side a little bit longer than we've been seeing it on the insurance side, but it's really just uh, dismaying. And it's another thing we're going to have to fight, I guess. So yeah, it's one thing I think to, well, it's bad enough really to, to saddle people with incredible debt after they've gone to the emergency room for something that isn't deemed an emergency and another whole level of cruelty to deny them care in the first place and cause people's, well, death. I mean, nothing short of that really. It's so awful. Yeah. So we're, we're going to keep, we're obviously going to keep you informed about like these trends and changes happening in the private insurance industry and all the horrible new shit they're pulling out, even as they're cashing in off of the pandemic. But I want to end by a couple of thank yous. First of all, shout out to the dude who every time we do a podcast posts like (laughs) fake anti-vaccine myths on our Facebook page. And I have to delete it every time. I I just blocked him. Okay, I did too. So he's been double blocked. Uh, Sorry, buddy. You won't be able to do this again. And then uh, more important, uh, sincere shout out and thank you to our podcast team who like makes this podcast happen every every single month our podcast manager is sarah sang our show notes writer is jerry katz and the audio editor for this episode is andrew felicia so thanks so much y'all and we will be back next time after my vacation Ooh.